Welcome to the conversation on the Young Turks. I'm Michael Shore in Los Angeles, and I'm joined today by Teresa McCallman, who is running for state Senate in the 49th District of New York State. She ran for mayor of Schenectady. And uh, Teresa, thank you so much for being with us today. And I'd love to know a little bit about you and what motivates you uh, to run for office at a time where you're going to be challenging a Democrat for state Senate. Well, my name is Teresa McCallman, and um, I am a mother of four and a new grandparent of wow. one. My grandson. That's what I said. <laughs> when are they giving the youngest looking grandparent award this year? <laughs> I always look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, I am an educator. And I uh, recently just ran for mayor in the city of Schenectady against an eight-year incumbent. And I only lost by about a little over 100 votes. And I ran initially to be mayor because um, coming from being um, formerly being homeless with pregnant and with children and being on social services and just struggling just to pay rent to even find an apartment to live, especially in the city of Schenectady where I live, um, and working through those services to get assistance, the struggle was completely unnecessary and then funding was not always available. And then the neighborhoods that we did end up living in, of course, were low income neighborhoods. They were underserved, um, just absentee landlords and just so many things, all the, the, the normal stuff you hear about people who are struggling just to live. We went through all of that. And I kept saying to my, my husband, I said, there's got to be something we can do. We called out to all of our leaders and said, help. And they were like, well, pretty much, you know, go to, to the you know community action program or go to this person, this place. And every time we went there for help, there was never any funding or never any secure support. So I said, there's got to be something more that that I can do as an individual to make sure that all the, the atrocities and everything that we experienced from being homeless, suffering disasters and not getting the help that we need. I said, there's got to be more. So I got into community service, actually went back to school and got a few degrees. I got four degrees. Wow. Um, One for each kid, right? In about four and a half years, I was, I was not playing. I said, this, this got to be something I have to do. So I tried to learn as much as possible, doing an internship in the, in the Senate, learning how to compose bills, all of these different things. I wanted to know where was, was the pro where was the problem and how could I be a part of the solution? Let, so let's, my decision let, let, me, let me, let me interrupt you there. Cause I want to talk about that solution, Teresa. Okay. I want to, you know, uh, one of the more interesting things and people wouldn't believe this, but uh, of talking to candidates who didn't win is to try and figure out why they didn't, especially when they aspire for to a different office. So what, what was it, uh, that prevented your victory when these arguments are so clear to anybody listening, what was it within the structure that made it difficult for you to win? And then the second part of that question, what are you doing differently this time? So, so the thing is this, is that I won, okay? Because when they didn't expect me to get 1% of the vote, I only lost by 3.9% of the vote. Right. So actually against an eight year incumbent, that's really entrenched in the establishment and in the political machine. Me, just a, a, a parent, 
coming from them from absolutely nowhere, way past left field, coming in and saying, these are the issues, these are the problems you're ignoring us and you're ignoring us for far too long and change needs to happen. And it's going to happen whether you like it or not. And putting that highlight on the issues that spoke to the people and they said, oh my gosh, finally. And then on top of that, we have a large black and brown community here and a community of immigrants. When they see someone like me who has struggled, the real struggle with them and saying, I understand and I get it. And I see what the real issues are, not making a shiny new downtown that none of us can really afford to, to patronize. When I speak about the, when I spoke about the real issues, they came out in droves and voted for me. And, and then I said, great. and those are voters that you have presumably cultivated for this race as well. And some, yes, and 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 at that race, actually, there there were some people that I didn't even know knew I existed because we worked hard. Mind you, I had a team of three, a team of three. Wow. And maybe four volunteers in a city of sixty-five thousand voters, and I only lost by a little over a hundred votes for an eight-year incumbent. So that meant that my message was true. And they believed in me that I would be that that representative um, for all of their concerns and needs. And and I'm I'm never shied away from I've never shied away from getting down and dirty. And if you've if you've seen on my website, you've seen that when we had abandoned properties that were city owned, and there were people um, who were complaining about this, I went myself with my children and a couple of friends, and we went and cleaned up the properties because that's what needed to be done. And they saw, Teresa will do exactly what needs to be done. She is the person for us. And one of my representatives, an assembly member, um, came to me and said, Teresa, during my mayoral run, said, a lot of the things that you are, are asking for is correct. But unfortunately, the mayor is not the one who, who can actually fix this. This is a state funding issue. Right. And I said, OK, but I want to stay as close to the issue as possible. I don't want to be so far away. And he said, I promise you, this is where you need to be. I feel like you will be more effective in this position. So fast forward, I lose in the most glorious way. And yeah. he said, what do you think? What are you going to do? And I said, well, let me think about it for a minute. And I went um, to speak to my team of three. <laughs> I said, what should I do next? Because I can't stop. I have to keep going because I promised the people that I will be there for them. And they said, well, do the Senate run because it's funding is an issue. And that's how we're going to address the disparities and so, what's so being ignored other, in, our system, in our communities. Having other legislators hear you, I mean, you're in an office of one as the mayor, but having other legislators hear you in Albany uh, may be a better avenue to making those changes. Did you learn a little bit about balance? And when I asked that question, the, the power structure is what the power structure is, right? Yes. You're going to get to Albany should you win, and there is a power structure there. Uh, to get your message and to get the things done that you want to get done, uh, do you have a plan to work with that structure, as you've seen some members of Congress who have gone there uh, trying to break down the structure, but have realized that you get more done by actually trying to break it down, but working with them as well? Have you learned lessons about that? Well, um, and and I know everyone's been paying attention to what's going on right now, right? Yeah. So the structure in itself has already been paused, taken mm -hmm. down, knocked down, at a standstill. 
how we functioned before is not how we can go forward. We cannot keep letting political nonsense, and that, that was my curse word, <laughs> political nonsense, keep dictating how we take care of ourselves. Right. Even during this uh, pandemic, there was an issue with upstate lending ventilators to downstate and also bringing patients upstate. And there were politicians, including my opponent, Jim Tedisco, who were against it. Why? They're going to make us sick. We are already sick. Yeah. We're already suffering. Everyone in the world is. Why are you letting politics get in the middle of this? History will remember us for our actions and inactions. So as it stands right now, the political nonsense can no longer carry us at all. We have to come together and we have to take care of ourselves. And I know for sure that this is exactly how the majority of the people who supported me before feel and how they feel right now. Uh, you say history remembers us by our actions. Uh, when uh, should you win this race? Uh, and and serve in this in the U in the New York State Senate in Albany. How would you like Teresa McCalman to be remembered for her service to the state? What 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 sort of signature item would you like to see your name attached to? I don't wait for someone else to do it. I don't. When I and I'm not the person to sit there and complain and complain and complain and point fingers. Look, the government's not doing this job. Look, your congressperson is not doing their job. I said, what's the issue? This is the issue. And then I say, how can we fix this? And I don't put it all just on my shoulders. I make sure that everyone is involved, who wants to be involved and who can be involved. involved. And I say, okay, how can we get this done? I am solution, solution, solutions. That's it. And if no one else wants to do it, I will go do it. And I have proven that time and time again. Whenever there's a problem, anyone who knows me, they call me and say, Teresa, um, I have a question and maybe something simple. I'm not sure how to get this done. And I go, okay, I got you. Let me take care of that. that that's right. just me. I've always been that way. As an educator, that's how I am. There's a problem. What are the solutions? I'm always a person to get things done. And as a senator, that's going to help. I couldn't help but think when you were, and I, I, I've been to Schenectady, when you were talking about the immigrant population in in your district and, and everything, how one of the toughest words to say in the English language is Schenectady. So I can't imagine English as a second language and moving to Schenectady because I can barely say it. Uh, yes, Teresa yes. Kalman, uh, I, I really appreciate your time. I, I admire your tenacity, certainly, and, and running after you've already uh, tried one office going for another one, going for those degrees in four and a half years, the four ch kids, the coming out of homelessness. I uh, wish you good luck and thanks for being on the conversation on the Young Turks. Thank you so much, Michael. Welcome to the conversation on TYT. And, uh, you know, as as if we needed more to be upset about about COVID, uh, there is bad news beneath the bad news. And I'm joined today by Guardian reporter Kenya Evelyn, who's going to tell us a little bit about that. And it, it really is how this uh, this virus is uh, disproportionately affecting uh, on racial lines, across racial lines. And, and Kenya, thanks for being on the conversation. You know, let's pretend nobody understands why. Uh, people in communities of color understand perfectly well why. 
make us smarter on this issue, if you will. Why, why in, a, in a layman's way is this happening? Simply, it's it's a matter of racism. I think oftentimes a conversation gets framed around race makes people disproportionately more susceptible to the the COVID nineteen, but it's actually racism, racial racial disparities in the healthcare system in many of our institutions that exacerbate existing conditions that make the coronavirus and the symptoms surrounding it unfavorable for African Americans. Where do we see that? We see that with African Americans living more disproportionately in food deserts, in supermarkets. We see that with the in uh, the unequal access to healthcare where uh, african americans are more likely to be uninsured than their white counterparts those uh, long-standing health inequities are actually exacerbating the what we see now where african americans are more likely to contract the virus and die from covid-19 you know when john edwards ran for president and this was i i'm going to go to 2004 i think he was running in a primary and then he became john kerry's running mate and then he drowned in scandal and we've never heard from him since. He did make one good point. He talked about two Americas in his primary run, how we live in two Americas. And when that when we saw those two Americas laid bare in Katrina, we said, oh, we've got to learn from this, the racial disparities there. What do you think, Kenya, can be learned from COVID about this? What can if this is a pandemic, it's once a a century perhaps and at least in the past century. What, what can we learn from this? What can we do about it? Well, number one, we can start with unifying our systems. We can start with concentrating our systems for reporting and testing. One of the major areas that contributes to those disparities is that, number one, our testing qualifications skewed largely affluent and white. Uh, one or one doctor I talked to, uh, she talked about how because of testing requirements that limited uh, those who could qualify for the test to travel, those who had recent travel to uh, susceptible zones, that limited and essentially blocked a lot of African-Americans, primarily from areas we see such as Queens or Brooklyn, from qualifying for a test or even being uh, allowed to uh, seek testing or seek qualifications for testing uh, compared to their more fluent counterparts in places like Manhattan. That allowed certain communities to experience a virus spreading for weeks before we even confirmed our first case. As we know, the first case was actually two weeks prior, at least what we know of, a Latina woman in California was likely our first case in early February before we knew two weeks later in Washington state. That's because uh, black Americans and as well as brown and Native Americans are less likely to be able to qualify for those tests, even though they're more likely to live in environments that make it conducive to contracting the virus. They live in urban areas. They're more likely to, to travel uh, long distances due to gentrification, pushing them out of these communities. So because African-Americans are more likely to live in areas that are heavily concentrated in urban communities because they're more likely to take public transportation, this made them more susceptible to contracting the virus, even though many of our early testing requirements skewed heavily affluent and white, requiring foreign travel, requiring specifically travel to uh, coronavirus uh, areas that had already experienced their first case. And because of this, this allowed the, the virus to permeate around the uh, black and brown communities for quite some time in communities that where they could not access quality health care because of closed hospitals, because of lack of act cuts to Medicare and Medicaid. Those are longstanding societal and health care issues that contribute to why we are seeing African-Americans 
Americans disproportionately contracting the virus now. And what the CDC even tells us is that up to 50% of cases aren't even reflecting those racial or ethnic disparities. So they could be quite worse. What we see here is that there needs to be some type of nationalized consistency in how people are reporting their data sets and requirements that every state is, re is reporting who contracts the virus, how they contracted the virus, how they recovered, and other various uh, uh, points that could factor into how we target certain communities for testing and treatment. There's something else here, and, and I'm asking about general wellness, right? I mean, because you see the, the parts of the demographics of those affected by corona, and while they do skew on race, they skew on race as well because of pre-existing conditions. So is this a clarion call for general wellness? I mean, I think that you, you intimated that when you first responded, but in terms of high blood pressure, in terms of obesity, in terms of uh, issues that, uh, that affect these, you know, uh, heart conditions certainly, um, that affect um, the black community in bigger numbers percentage-wise, is this a call for, for better wellness to be prepared in general? I think that is is, is a, almost a dangerous slippery slope um, because because it puts the onus on betterment and essentially protecting yourselves from outside factors on the people who are suffering from it essentially themselves. Um, but where we see, yes, African Americans very much so are more susceptible to certain um, pre-existing pre conditions, excuse me. African Americans are more susceptible to certain pre-existing conditions. We see that with diabetes, we see that with hypertension, obesity, but in researching or even looking at those varying factors that also plays into our, our healthcare disparities, that also plays into other disparities. Like we said, food insecurities. African Americans are more likely to live in a food desert. Only 8% of African Americans live in a geographical area that contains a supermarket. That impacts the quality of food that you're going to have access to if the majority of your groceries come from a local convenience store as opposed to something that has healthy options like fruits and vegetables. That's going to play into how you see uh, the prevalence of obesity in communities. That's going to play in how we see diabetes and hypertension in communities. So yes, are African Americans more susceptible to these conditions? Absolutely. Does that make them more vulnerable to the coronavirus? Absolutely. But what are the underlying factors that make even them more susceptible to those conditions? And when we get to the root cause, the root cause is racism within our healthcare system, racial inequality, and uh, healthcare, in excuse me, the, the main issue is that we have long-standing long institutional uh, disparities that make access to healthcare, access to better income, access to just essentially the American dream a lot less attainable for African Americans. And what, you know, and I, I, I want to just sort of clarify that I, I was talking about it as sort of societal betterment, not just sure. you know, being upon the, the, the black community, uh, because uh, we all suffer, obviously, um, when when uh, you know, when there is this disparity, uh, our our. our our hospitals are overwhelmed. Our healthcare system is overwhelmed when it need not be. Uh, so I want to ask too. I, I, I want to ask as well um, about uh, patient bias, right? I mean, let's talk about. We spent a lot of time talking about why so many African Americans are disproportionately affected. What about when somebody gets to the hospital? When somebody's presenting? Let's talk a little bit about the racial bias in medicine in patient treatment uh, and explain how that manifests. Absolutely. So what we're seeing, and we even see it in the headlines that you know appear throughout the outbreak uh, currently, is that oftentimes African Americans are seeking treatment, even though we're more likely to be, uh, excuse me, 
even though we're more likely to be distrustful of the healthcare system, we're, we're less likely to have a primary care physician, we're less likely to seek treatment in the, in the event that we have certain symptoms, African-Americans are seeking treatment. And what are we seeing? They're being denied. Uh, we just saw most recently a young woman in Manhattan who, re, who sought a test four times and was turned away and recently died of COVID-19. It's not just that African-Americans have certain underlying conditions or that there's healthcare disparities, we know that, but there's also then implicit bias within our healthcare system among our healthcare professionals and among those who are supposed to be tasked with providing that quality care. We see that in, in terms of our disparities in maternal health for black women. Black women are two, two and a half more times likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts. That's because black people simply aren't being believed. We go and we, we express our symptoms. We say that we are experiencing X, Y, and Z. And because we are more uh, prone to those underlying conditions, we're more likely to be written off as those underlying conditions. So when we talk about those implicit bias, that exacerbates the issue where we're seeing African-Americans are trying to seek that treatment and being turned away. Yeah, it's exacerbated situations all over. I mean, we're looking at uh, a historically tragic pandemic. And so you see the bad news and then there's bad news within the bad news. Kenya Evelyn uh, writes for The Guardian. Uh, you can see her reporting there. Thank you for sharing this perspective that's so important and I think uh, is being talked about now in ways that is actually gratifying because it hadn't been, and now I think you see people talking about it probably because of your work as well, Kenya. Thanks for being on The Young Turks. Thanks for having me.